You're listening to TIP. Sometimes the best investments are the ones that have done the absolute worst over the last several years, which is basically just a way of thinking about another way of framing buy low, sell high, right? On today's episode, I'm joined by Michael Guyad. Michael is the portfolio manager at Toroso Asset Management writer of the Lead Leg Report, and author of five award-winning research papers on market anomalies and investing. During this episode, I chat with Michael about the benefits of investing in ETFs versus stock picking, why all ETFs are not created equal, what you should look for when comparing different ETFs, how to invest using a risk-on, risk-off framework to improve your returns, what investments perform well during highly volatile environments, how to use the utility sector as a leading indicator of stock market volatility, and so much more. With that, I really hope you enjoy today's conversation with Michael Guyad. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Michael Guyed. Michael, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Michael, it's great to have you here. So you were on the We Study Billionaires show back in 2021. You talked with Trey a little bit about quantitative investing strategies. I'm curious today to dive more into some of those strategies, as well as talk a bit more about ETFs. You are a portfolio manager at Troso Investments, and Troso focuses on ETF-focused research and manages ETF portfolios. So to start things off today, I was hoping you could maybe touch on what you think the benefits are of investing using ETFs versus just stock picking. It's a good question. First of all, you got to go back to the academic research around asset allocation more broadly and all the evidence that suggests that if you really want to generate longer term returns, it's not about what securities individually you buy, but rather what average you buy. That's not to say there aren't, of course, winners when it comes to stock picking, but the overwhelming evidence suggests that the most important decision is the average looking at broader beta and asset allocation is the key driver of, of performance. ETFs are very good from the perspective of they allow somebody to get the average right of a particular theme of a particular part of the marketplace without having to worry too much about the idiosyncratic company-specific risks and dynamics that often get people tripped up. It's interesting, right? Because if you want to beat the average, you have to choose the right average. And I think oftentimes people think about some story stock or something which seemingly on a chart has a tremendous amount of momentum, but they're not realizing that there's other probably, quote unquote, safer, even though it's never really safe, safer ways of expressing a a view than trying to go for something specific on the company level. I want to touch on a couple things you mentioned there. First is when you pick stocks, you are exposing yourself to those idiosyncratic risks or company specific risks that you mentioned. And we know that the market doesn't compensate investors for taking on company specific risk because this can be diversified away by holding more positions. Whereas when you hold an ETF, this risk is eliminated. So I thought that was a really great point. And another thing that you mentioned is that instead of having to be right about a specific stock, 
You just have to be right about the average or industry, which to a lot of investors may seem more manageable, especially if this isn't something that they can dedicate a lot of hours to, like stock picking often requires. Yeah, and it's important to note, by the way, on that point that I think one of the nice things about not getting sucked into a specific stock story is results in you also, by extension, avoiding group narratives around that individual stock story, right? There's a lot of behavioral evidence that suggests that the moment somebody buys a stock, they end up believing the stock's going to go up even more because they own it. Then you pile on top of that echo chambers and other people that are big fans of that stock tweeting or commenting about that stock. And my point is that it's a lot easier to get entrenched in, into an investment thesis when it's story specific, company specific, as opposed to average specific, which again, I think from a longer term perspective results in probably better returns because you don't get sucked into a company specific narrative, which causes you to maybe overweight at the exact wrong time relative to your risk tolerance. More of a side note. So next, I'm wondering if you can briefly talk about the different ways that an ETF can get exposure to the underlying index. And does this matter for returns? As far as ETFs go, as you know, there's a lot of different ways that ETFs can track a particular index or benchmark. Obviously, the, the benefit of the ETF structure is that there's no necessarily short-term capital gains tax, unless you yourself obviously sell prior to a full year and you get to essentially get exposure to a bunch of stocks underneath the surface, as long as it's not an ETF based on some derivatives or something like that. This is something I come across quite a bit. I think a lot of people confuse liquidity with volume when it comes to an ETF. So some people seeing an exchange-traded fund, if it's not trading very actively, might say, well, this thing is a liquid. I want to be able to be in something that I can get in and out of easily because the volume is already pretty high. The problem is that that's just a completely false construct because it's not about the volume of the ETF as a wrapper for a bunch of investments. It's about the underlying liquidity of the investments the ETF invests in, right? So I think ETFs are great for using your very term investors, even though a lot of people often actively trade them without any real rules-based approach or methodology behind it. But you have to understand that ETFs are meant to be an efficient way of getting access to some part of the marketplace. It's not necessarily meant to be an efficient way for you to trade in and out of that marketplace. In the past, we've had some guests come on the show and talk about how ETFs are a good choice for most investors. They've kind of become a go-to investment vehicle for many investors looking to just build low-cost portfolios. But even for a seemingly simple strategy, like wanting to buy just a total US stock market index, there's just so many ETFs out there now. And so I guess with the rise of all these new ETF products, what type of due diligence should investors be doing for ETFs? And I guess like what are the most important things that investors should be comparing when ETFs have similar strategies? Okay, so this is a very good question because there's you're right, there's a tremendous proliferation of the number of ETFs that are out there. Most are really largely doing the same thing. It's really just a question of which is cheaper, right? And those that are more on the fringe, which I would consider my own ETFs, Roro and Jojo, certainly more on the fringe, can diverge very dramatically from other ETFs, but also have their own risks, as is very evident this year, given the way my own funds unfortunately have performed because of this strange dynamic of treasuries correlating to equities, which we'll get into in the drawdown. But I think when you think about due diligence and deciding what to invest in, Look, it makes sense. If you're going to be kind of plain vanilla, you probably want to consider the vanguards of the world or the very kind of cheap, passive, 
beta exposure and not worry about a product that is the S&P, but maybe on the periphery does something a little bit different. Because at the end of the day, it's all going to be within a plus or minus range of the broad stock market. I think for the more niche thematic ETFs, the best thing to do there is to look at the underlying holdings of those niche thematic ETFs. Good example of this. I know there's a lot of interest in ESG investing. There's a bunch of ESG ETFs. When you actually look at the underlying holdings of a lot of these ESG ETFs, they're really just large cap tech. Facebook, Amazon, Apple. That's not really ESG, right? And that's not going to differentiate itself against the S&P. My point is, if you're going to go core basic, you want to go for the least expensive exposure to the quote-unquote stock market. If you're going to go thematic and satellite, Make sure that whatever you're investing in, whatever that theme is, whatever the name of that fund is, is actually matched logically with the holdings of that fund. Because a name alone doesn't necessarily mean that it's capturing a particular idea. I think those were all really good points there. And I guess in terms of so cost, liquidity are some main things you mentioned. What about tracking error? Is that something that we should be looking at and that we should care about? It depends on how you define tracking error. If you're talking about tracking error against a benchmark like the S&P, assuming it's a large cap strategy, it matters, although for the most part, a lot of these passive vehicles track pretty tightly. Although it's interesting, though, because if you really want to have a diversified portfolio, you actually want things which have high tracking error, which sounds like a really strange concept. It's like, why am I advocating that you should have tracking error? Tracking error simply means something that's behaving differently against some benchmark, positively or negatively. Well, that's, I'm pretty sure, what you'd want with diversification. You want to make sure the tracking error is low in terms of the fund doing what it's supposed to be doing, but don't shy away from high tracking error strategies, which shouldn't be benchmarked against the S&P and have a very different return profile, because you may actually want that in your portfolio for a more robust return stream. So I guess one way to sum that up is you want low tracking error between the ETF and the benchmark it's trying to track. But high tracking error on a portfolio level can be a good thing because this just means that you are more diversified in your holdings. So as I mentioned before, we've had a number of different guests on the show over the years. Some of them say that the average investor would be better off just putting their money in index funds. But on the other hand, over the past year or so, I've heard a lot more people say that this next decade is going to be a stock picker's environment. So I'm wondering, what are your views on that? All right, so it's important to first define what stock picker's market means, because you often hear that term. Stock picker's market presumably means that there are going to be some very clear, identifiable winners that will drive returns for the average. I'd actually, oddly enough, argue it was a stock picker's market for the last decade in terms of there were only five stocks to pick from, the fangs. It really wasn't stock picking for small caps, because small caps relative to large caps, have been terrible going back to 2012. If you look at the ratio of small caps against large caps, that levels back to 2002 levels, meaning that if you were thinking about stock picking with the smaller cap side where there's a lot more options to choose from from a stock picking perspective, you did yourself a disservice with hindsight. Stock picking sounds like a great environment to choose winners from, but the reality is a healthy bull market should be one where it's not a stock picker's market where all stocks are rising in in a similar fashion, the rising tide lifting all boats, so that it becomes easier to choose a stock. You need to have differentiation in a portfolio. You need to think about what positions are going to diverge from other positions. But the problem is, if only a few positions are diverging, 
and that's what a stock picker's market is, well, that becomes problematic because then how in the world can you possibly diversify properly if only a few things are working, everything else is not? I guess I'll follow up with how should millennial investors think about properly diversifying their portfolio then? There's so many theories on how many assets you have to have or regional diversification, but what is your approach to that? Yeah, it's funny because I've been to a number of conferences where I'll have somebody who's younger come up to me and say, well, you know, what do you think? I've got uh, I've got Apple, I've got Dogecoin, I've got Qualcomm. Um, what do you think of my portfolio? And I say to them, well, I hope you like concentration. You have to think of diversification from the standpoint of what are, are things moving differently against some core factor? And I've made this point many times before. Real diversification means you have to have a portion of your portfolio that you hate. Because think about it, right? Why would you hate a portion of your portfolio? Because it's not working. Because it's not performing well, while other parts of your portfolio are. And if everything in your portfolio is working, you're by definition correlated, right? And that's not what diversification is. Real diversification has to mean investing in things you actually don't like. Because one, you could be wrong in your dislike for that investment. But two, you actually want things to have different movements against each other. They might be volatile assets, but combined together, if the volatility happens in different sequences, that's, again, what gets you a better portfolio over time. So a lot of millennial investors are likely in 100% equities, just given a higher risk tolerance, longer time frame. But what other assets should we think about diversifying to? Would that lead us to stray away from that 100% equity allocation? I'll frame this in the construct of risk on and risk off, right? Because diversification means you want probably a blend of the two, except in years like this year where risk off looks like risk on. Most things in reality are variations of beta, meaning they're basically just going to move off of the broader risk on of equities of S&P and then on the periphery of that, right? With different momentum, different acceleration rates, which kind of makes sense, right? Because progress happens by taking risk. Right? So everything's to some, in some way, shape, or form related to macro variables related to growth and, and inflation and all that you know, is tied to broader beta, which is risk on, lower volatility, progress. Risk off is, tends to be the things which benefit from volatility in stocks. And historically, the only real risk off plays that are true diversifiers, and it's an unpopular opinion, but this is fact when you look at correlations on average, usually treasuries, especially on the long duration side. Why? Because during risk-off safe haven moments, usually yields drop. They actually act inverse to equity. So if you're in long-duration treasuries, you can actually make money as stocks go down. Not this year. So we're talking about averages in terms of big declines. Two is gold. Gold does tend to act as a diversifier. Again, tends to do well when you have these high volatility pulses in equities. And then the third is the dollar itself, which on a side note, it's amazing to me that the dollar ended up being the best inflation hedge you could imagine with the way currency has behaved against everything else, right? Short the euro, short the yen. From that standpoint, the real argument would be that you want to have gold and treasuries. Now, gold has done eh, okay this year, hasn't really kind of provided any real significant benefits against just the S&P. Treasuries have been horrendous, right? In that we've never seen a drawdown in stocks that was this severe matched by an equivalent drawdown in treasuries as yields have spiked on the long end. That doesn't mean that you should not consider having treasuries in a portfolio just because it's going through a wildly difficult period. I mean, sometimes the best, I mean, by definition, the best time to buy anything or the best way to avoid a drawdown in any asset class is after one's already taken place. So you have this tremendous drawdown in treasuries relative to equities correlated in a very bizarre way. 
Now may not be a bad time to consider that, right? Again, to blend against an equity portfolio, because as much as everyone talks about inflation, you don't know. I mean, it could very well be that we have to worry about disinflation or even outright deflation, because somehow, with this entire narrative around inflation, people seemingly forgot that debt is inherently deflationary at these kinds of numbers. And if that is going to be deflationary as one of those possible outcomes, you probably want treasuries to play that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. That was a good segue because the next things I wanted to talk to you about was kind of your risk on, risk off strategy. So you kind of defined what it was there. Can you, I guess, for our millennial listeners that don't know, what is a risk-on, risk-off strategy? 
this is really important because the media often says that if the market's positive, it's a risk-on day. If the stock market's negative, it's a risk-off day. It's not about direction. Never was, never will be. This is just the media framing it based on how the markets close. It's ultimately about volatility. Risk-on is lower volatility. Risk-off is higher volatility. Right? It's as simple as that. Typically, in high volatility regimes, markets go down, but not always. But there's one thing that you can say with some degree of certainty, which is that when you're in a highly volatile state for the stock market, that's where you tend to have accidents. That's where you tend to have major crashes, corrections, and bear markets, because markets are already moving around violently, and then you can have a massive decline just because you're already moving around violently. Okay, so from that perspective, if you go with me that risk-on is conditions-favoring lower volatility, risk-off is conditions-favoring higher volatility, the question then becomes how do you define the opportunity set? To benefit off of lower volatility regimes and equities, higher volatility regimes and in, in equities on the risk off side. Now, this is an important part of the discussion. People think that if you're in a quote unquote risk off environment, you should short the market or you should take an outright bet on a decline in prices. But again, there's not a clear, not as clear of a correlation as people think between volatility and direction. The problem with risk off periods is that yes, you can make a lot of money shorting. But because you're in a higher volatility state, you can also get whipsawed to death with that shorting, as opposed to if you're in a lower volatility regime where markets are going higher, whipsaw risk is less because you have more consecutive updates. You have a, a better trending environment as opposed to kind of the seesaw back and forth that happens in higher volatility states. In my world, I've got three funds. ATAX, my mutual fund, goes back to 2012, RORO. Jojo, they're all risk on, risk off strategies. They're all predicated on this concept that one, they're leading indicators to volatility regimes changing. Again, risk on, lower volatility regime, risk off, higher volatility regime. But they also are predicated on the idea that the risk off side, the opportunity set, behaves the way historically it does, which again goes back to treasuries as the safe haven. Why are treasuries a safe haven? Because risk off, higher volatility correlates to rising bankruptcy risk among corporations. Credit risk, default premiums, they tend to increase when you're in a high volatility state. So if you're in a risk-off period where volatility is higher, there's concern suddenly that the riskier companies can't pay off their debts. There's doubt around company fundamentals. So what does money do? It goes into the quote-unquote safety of government debt and of treasuries. This year has been a notable exception, and it's not my opinion. I've put out this tweet many times. You look at the top 50 drawdowns for the S&P peak to trough. Going back to 1961, usually, treasuries either make money when stocks are in those big declines or are at least down a lot less. This year is unequivocally an anomaly. And people seeing that would say, well, it looks like your approach forgot to go risk off. But you're in a weird anomaly where treasuries and stocks are basically acting the same. And you see those stats just like everybody else. It's one of the biggest yield spikes in history by some metrics in terms of centuries, literally for the 10-year treasury. So I say all that because one thing I find with younger investors uh, that they have problem a problem with is they assume the most recent past can be extrapolated out into the future. The problem with that is that what if the most recent past is the anomaly? If it's the anomaly, then you want to actually bet that things get back to some degree of normalcy in terms of asset allocation, trading, diversification. If the anomaly persists, well, then we're all flying blind because if it's an anomaly and things have dramatically changed in terms of the way the system works, and maybe it has, how do you know what to compare that against? How do you know what the playbook is if it's never been written? You made a lot of great points there. I think too often investors don't look far enough back on the history of global markets, as you mentioned, 
And many can fall into the trap of assuming that the next decade will look like the last, which just might not be the case. And that's why I like having people like you on the show to help us learn about strategies that will work in environments that maybe don't follow the same pattern as the last 10 years. So I'm curious to know, how are you thinking about reallocating your portfolio during this time, given those views? So there's a, um, and I talk about this on, on Twitter spaces, on Lee Lag Live, or my own podcast too, but there's a, a well-known phenomenon called the Morningstar Curse, which basically says that if you were to take the top performing funds, top performing strategies over the last three years, the five-star funds, and then look at how they behave the next three years, it ends up being that those top performing funds end up being among the worst performing funds in the next three years. Conversely, same is the same is also true, meaning that the worst performing strategies and funds over the last five years or three years end up being oftentimes in the top decile for the next three, five years. In other words, there's a degree of mean reversion right, that happens with strategies which are hot for a moment and then go cold and then cold goes to hot, right? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. In many ways, sometimes the best investments are the ones that have done the absolute worst over the last several years, which is basically just a way of thinking about another way of framing buy low, sell high, right? The problem is FOMO often screws with people's heads, right? They want to chase that which is going up, and they think they can trade it and get out just as the turn's about to happen. And all the evidence suggests that that's not true. But you have much more room for error. You have much more cushion, obviously, with things which have already done so poorly where not too many people are trying to chase. It's a long-winded answer, but my point here is that sometimes I often advocate that people should consider allocating to that which has not done well at all. By the way, like energy stocks, okay, which you know have been on fire, they've done poorly for a decade. But if you follow that that suggestion that maybe the best thing to do is buy the the biggest laggards over the last cycle over the last several years, well, at some point, mean inversion kicks in. At some point, you end up having that which is last become first and first last. I want to circle back quickly to the risk on risk off topic, because I'm just curious to know what indicators are you kind of looking at to decide whether we are in a risk off or risk on? Is it just the volatility index? Is that mainly what you're watching? I always liken the um, the VIX index to the mile marker that a crash happens. It doesn't necessarily tell you the weather. Right? It's much more reactionary than anything else. I've got these five different research studies. They won these different awards going back to 2014. It's what my own funds are largely based off of as derivations of the approach. But broadly speaking, that which has some degree of predictive power when it comes to this risk on risk off dynamic, they all relate to these indicators all relate to interest rates. The utility sector. Historically, utilities are the most bond-like sector of the stock market. Historically, when utilities on a short-term basis are outperforming up more down less, average stock market volatility is likely to rise on a go-forward basis. Not my opinion, by the way. It goes back to 1926. You can download the data. You can run the, the metrics and see that very transparently. Why would utilities warn you of higher volatility risk-off regimes? Because utilities benefit from rates being lower, interest rates being lower. Well, why would interest rates be lower? Because demand for money is falling because you're in a slowdown, right? And utility companies are very highly leveraged. So they benefit more from the cost of capital dropping than from revenue increasing because they're highly regulated. Okay, so that's the utility sector. Lumber, which goes into my Roto ETF, which again has had unfortunately a very ugly drawdown because treasures are not acted the way historically they do. Roro uses lumber. Now, I have a lot of people on Twitter on at Lee Lagaport who say to me, I don't understand why you look at lumber so much. You know, why do you talk about lumber? Why do you have a picture that's got lumber and gold eyes, right? And it's because it's about your home. 
right? I mean, it's not, again, it's not an opinion. The average home has 16,000 board feet of lumber. So you often hear people talk about copper as a tell because of industrial activity, but it's really lumber that everyone has to focus on because it's a tell on housing, on housing starts. So if lumber is weak, what does that mean? It means probably demand for housing's weak. Well, if demand for housing is weak, what does that mean for interest rates? Probably means three-year mortgage rates have to respond by dropping because demand for mortgages drops. So again, I go back to this idea. It's really all about interest rate movement, even a moving average. A lot of millennials, I'm sure, look at moving averages. It's you know prim- probably the most popular, important way of looking at a trend. Moving averages also tell you about volatility and interest rates. Why? Because usually if you're below a 200-day moving average, again, not my opinion, markets are more volatile. If you're below a 200-day moving average, you're probably in a recession. What does that mean for interest rates? It means they're likely falling. I'm very basic in the way that I look at things, even though people think that the indicators I often cite are complicated. They're really not. They're all just variations of the same story. What are the early warning signs of a change in the demand for money? Whether it's utilities outperformance, lumber weakness, moving average, it's all the same, trying to get to the same place, but using a different indicator in each case. I really liked your paper on the utility sector and the beer beta rotation approach. And I'm just curious for our listeners who haven't read it, can you just kind of walk us through this beta rotation strategy and kind of what are the practical takeaways from this? The paper, which is available on the Social Science Research Network, SSRN.com, basically, it's very simple. It's, I mean, and I'm a huge fan of simplicity when it comes to backtesting and strategy development. If utilities are performing the stock market on a rolling four-week basis, go into utilities, risk off. Otherwise, if utilities are underperforming the market, the relative momentum is weak, go into the market. So it's literally just look at the relative performance and chase utilities on a relative basis or chase the broader market on a relative basis. You can think of it like a beta of one in the case of risk on market or a beta of less than one, because utilities are less volatile just given the nature of their price movement. Okay. You do that rotation going back to the late 1920s and across every single rolling decade, rolling 10 years, every single period you can imagine, that strategy generates real significant alphas. I remember it's like 420 basis points of outperformance. Now, it's interesting because that outperformance simply chasing utilities or chasing the S&P flies in the face of, let's say the CFA curriculum would argue, curriculum would argue, I'm a CFA charter holder myself, that the only way to get more return is to take more risk, which I think probably a lot of millennials also have heard. But it's not about taking on more risk, it's about taking the right risk at the right time. It's oftentimes the best way to generate longer term returns over a long period of time is to just not be down more than the broader stock market on average. Again, a year like this year, been very hard to do that if your opportunity set was treasures for risk off. Although if you used utilities as your risk off play this year, you actually did a hell of a lot better, right? Given the way utilities have so dramatically outperformed, I'd argue that that this year was unbelievably spot on if you use utilities as the expression of risk off as opposed to treasuries. The point here is that, and the paper again, it's, it's back tested. It's, it's not my opinion. This is, this is all just what history shows. History shows that utilities are the most differentiated sector of the stock market on average, and perhaps the most important to tell you about risks rising for equities. So as investors, we're often told there's no way to time the market perfectly and consistently. In your paper, you kind of mentioned that there's signaling power of the utilities sector. Would you say that the utility sector can be a way to maybe time investment purchases? Yes, but there's a caveat there. Why is it that market timing doesn't work? Let's let's take a step back, right? Because there's a lot of studies around that. 
And I agree with those studies, by the way. And some people would scratch their head and say, how can you say you agree with market timing when your own funds do market timing? Because there's a nuance there again, and this is always the important part. It goes back to the opportunity set. The reason why market timing doesn't work in all these studies is because the risk off play is cash, right? It's either the asset that has the risk that you're trying to time into or cash to wait. The problem there is that cash doesn't allow you to be wrong and still make money. You have no chance with cash. Again, it worked this year. I get it, right? But the idea here is that market timing doesn't work because with any signal, you have false signals. You have times where you play defense and the market runs away from you and you're defensive in your posture. Well, if you're in cash, you don't have a chance of getting any benefit from that. If you're shorting and you're wrong, it's even worse, right? Because the market goes higher and you lose money because now you're making a directional bet. If you are long utilities instead, you could be wrong being defensive, but you're still equities. You're still going to go up, presumably, if you're in a false signal and the market ignores it as far as defensive uh, posturing goes. Same deal with treasuries, because you have yield, right? Treasuries are not perfectly inversely correlated to equities, but on average, they tend to be in these high volatility equity thrusts. I mention that because I think too many people get stuck on market timing in terms of timing the thing that they want to go up, which is the true positive, right? In other words, the fact that the signal actually ends up being right, whatever signal you're following, they don't think about the false signals, right? And my point is that you need to have an opportunity set to time your risk on with a risk off investment that can at least give you a chance to make money if you're wrong in your signal, right? So yes, I do think you can use utilities to help determine when to take a more offensive or defensive stance, but don't view defense as cash because again, if your utility signal is wrong or if the lumber to gold signal is wrong, you at least want to have a chance at making money, which of course doesn't guarantee that you'll make money, but over time, hopefully it gives you better odds. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. 
NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. I've looked into a lot of research on market timing myself. I'm really curious about the topic. And it just seems like investors make a lot of mistakes because their decisions are driven by emotion a lot of the time. So they wait too long, they get out too early, and then they just don't get back in. It's that emotion. So if you kind of take that emotion out of it and follow a rules-based strategy, like you mentioned, where the alternative isn't just sitting in cash, but it's a rotational strategy between different yielding assets, then timing the purchase of your investments could potentially improve returns in that context. And on that point, it's, emotion is very hard to model. Like your own self-emotion is hard to model, right? It's, it's, and, just be, and this is why I'm a fan of rules-based approaches, right? Which are not, you take out the emotion out because it's based on some formula, some set of variables that you're following on a regimented basis. But it's important to note that whether emotion plays into an investment return stream or not, you will still have drawdowns. You will still have periods where you're desynced. I'm living this myself with my three funds. Everything I do is rules-based. It has nothing to do with my opinion, right? And those rules, unfortunately, use treasuries as the risk-off play. And with this tremendous yield spike and all this dislocation that's happening in the bond market, it's been extraordinarily difficult to rotate, and it's been extraordinarily difficult to play stock market volatility when treasury volatility is more than stock market volatility, even though treasuries historically benefit from stock market volatility. Believe me, I get emotional based on that doesn't have anything to do with my decision-making because it's all rules-based. But you will have no matter what declines. The, the point about the emotional aspect of investing is important from the standpoint that because emotion can be variable and can be somewhat random, depending upon how you woke up in the morning or depending upon you looking at the screen at a certain moment in time, it just creates a variable you don't want to have to deal with. That brings up a really good point. How can investors implement more rules-based approaches to their own strategy? I encourage anybody and everybody that wants to invest to not look at a chart. Don't look at a chart. Look instead at actual data and actually do some backtest. Now, backtesting is interesting because I do a lot of presentations on the road and at CFA chapters, and some people like backtesting, some people don't. Although it's funny because those that don't like backtesting seem to love buy and hold, but buy and hold is a backtest. It's a backtest with one trade. 
Nobody ever thinks of it like that, right? But everything's a backtest. And sometimes backtests fail in real life, you know, when they're implemented, like the backtests of buying whole for Japan, going back to 1989. So everything in markets is a backtest, number one. But for those that want to be active or tactical, take a more proactive stance on their portfolios, you've got to actually look at the underlying data of price movement, look at the sequence of returns in different regimes, and create essentially if-then statements. If this happens, then you do this trade, and here's what the historical return tends to look like. There is so much nonsense in financial media and so many things that are said that if you just did a very, very rudimentary Excel data dump and did a backtest on what people are saying has predictive power, you'd see that it's all nonsense. The reality is there are very few true predictive things. I would argue utilities are one of them. I've proven that. Same thing with lumber, even though it's not working this year, on average, it tends to. But you can't really get a handle on on your potential future investment success if you don't know what the past looks like in terms of your strategy. And if you don't, on top of that, test that thesis across multiple cycles and then do out-of-sample testing as well. I can't tell you how many people on Twitter banging their chest around some trade they made on some cryptocurrency. Oh, I bought here. My indicator's perfect. And it's like it's a sample size of one. How do you know if that's luck or randomness? You don't. The only way to do that is to actually do some real hard data work and look at the sequence of returns and, and study, right? And actually, and that doesn't mean you have to be a quant or a PhD. I mean, you can do this very basic rudimentary backtesting with even just Excel. But the problem is that takes extra effort. And it's a lot easier to simply look at a chart and extrapolate the most recent past, goes back to the earlier discussion, into the future. But again, you don't know if the most recent past is an anomaly unless you backtest to see if the current environment really is abnormal and if there were prior periods like what happened where it ended up reverting back to normal. I wish people would spend more time actually looking at historical prices as opposed to just looking at a chart and drawing indicators on a chart. Actually create buy and sell signals and see the power and impact of compounding and false signals within that compounding to really have a sense of what's really happening in markets. For the average investor, do you recommend this approach for them, a more tactical approach, or would you suggest just a buy and hold strategy for those investors? It depends on temperament. If you're going to backtest and spend the time and effort to actually see what works and what doesn't from an active perspective, well, the next part of that is you have to make sure you stick to that, right? Because otherwise, if you do a backtest and then you have an emotional period where you simply override a particular signal, right? Then what's the point of doing the backtest? Because you've, you've now introduced the element of you into the investment decision-making process, right? The emotional aspect going, goes back to that conversation. For those that actually want to do it, they, you know, it's not just a question of backtesting. It's a question of, can you actually stick to whatever rules-based approach that you backtested? If you can't, just simply do a traditional asset allocation and close your eyes. Don't worry about the noise. Don't worry about the here and now. And this is an important point too. If you don't need the money tomorrow, if you don't need the money imminently in your investment portfolio, why do, you, why do you care if you're down? Money is always moving. Your net worth is always changing second by second. It doesn't matter, though, unless you have to use that capital for some emergency in the here and now or for some expense in the here and now, because you then basically pull money out at, at what could be the exact wrong time in a drawdown. But with enough time, you have to assume, hopefully, things come back. And if that's the case, being passive does make sense for a lot of people. But if you're going to be active, my point is be active in your own self-education. And make sure that you are not overly active to the point where you overrule your approach. I want to move on to some of your tweets. I've been following you on Twitter for a while now. I recently saw a tweet 
about you talking about Phoenix Rising. Can you explain what this is? Yeah, it hasn't been rising yet, unfortunately. And I don't mean Phoenix, Arizona, which has been going through a pretty bad uh, period in terms of home prices. When I say Phoenix Rising, what I'm referring to is the relationship of treasuries against stocks, that you end up having that inverse correlation kick in where if stocks go down heavy, yields on the long end for treasuries also drop, and you get back to that kind of safe haven status of U.S. treasuries. By the way, that's important to note that that's very different than saying bonds. Yes, treasuries are bonds, but treasuries are unique in the bond market in that they don't have that credit risk. Because at least in theory, U.S. dollar uh, government can print dollars to pay off and make bond investors whole. The problem is a lot of people have basically written off treasuries as the quote unquote safe haven. And I get it. It's because it did not do what it historically tends to. It ended up being as bad, if not worse than buying holds on the way down in equities. Again, what's what I've called many times my hell. Now, if, and this is the big question mark, and this is what it, selfishly I hope is the case, if housing is in a bear market, if you're going to have disinflation because housing is in a bear market, that means demand for mortgages drops. You're seeing a lot of data around that right? pretty aggressively. That probably means that liquidity comes out of the system even more, which should be negative, you would think, for stocks. And again, housing tends to precede, housing weakness tends to precede stock weakness. And probably means that treasuries, again, act as a risk-off safe haven, the phoenix rising, that inverse relationship, that diversification benefit that comes from holding long-duration treasuries against your risk-on basket. At least I hope the phoenix rises, because if you are in this world where yields keep rising, interest rates, treasuries keep selling off, while stocks themselves keep selling off, it's not to say that it can't happen, but think about the implications when you have such a highly leveraged society of collapsing asset values with higher cost of capital. You're talking about an explosion of the deficit, in which case you and I have bigger things to worry about than the value of our portfolios because. I would argue if this, if what we saw the first six months of 2022 were to repeat on and on and on, that feels like a, an apocalyptic end of the world type of situation for the entire system. That kind of jumps into my next question here. You had another tweet that said the movement in the dollar over the last few days should scare you and the dollar is acting like a sovereign debt crisis is imminent. I guess I'm just wondering... What do you mean by this and what does it, how should investors think about this impacting their portfolios? That's not meant to be hyperbolic or anything like that when I say sovereign debt crisis incoming, but factually, you know, most sovereign debt crises, you see it first in currency volatility. So the dollar has been unbelievably strong, especially as we're speaking, last several couple of weeks have been unbelievable in the surge higher. Why is that problematic? Because you have a lot of foreign entities that hold dollar denominated debt. So as the dollar goes up, it becomes harder and harder to get dollars to pay off that debt. When I say sovereign debt crisis, you never know where it comes from. You only figure out the narrative after the fact. But this movement in the dollar is disturbing because if it continues at this kind of a speed and holds at this level, there's very real stresses on the global system because of this. Now, let's take it a little bit further. What would normally be the response to a strong currency? You lower interest rates. Well, that's not going to happen with inflation as high as it is. You're in this really strange spot where you have something that could be a real problem for foreign dollar denominated debt and for possible defaulting on that debt by some entities or some countries, whatever it be. And you don't really have the ability for the Federal Reserve to counter it because them countering it then means inflation goes higher. This is a really nasty spot to be in. And my only point in referencing this is from a portfolio perspective, from a practicality perspective, that's another diversifier. I go back to what are the three diversifiers? The risk off plays are treasuries gold, and the dollar. 
It's not a very popular opinion. But if you have stocks, you may want to own the dollar itself, right? Which basically means short euro, short yen, because that can provide some very differentiated return streams in the event that the dollar is indeed telling you of a sovereign debt crisis, which would be very negative for equities and may even be more bullish for the dollar. So just circling back here then, if the dollar continues to strengthen, you mentioned a play would be short yen, short euro. Does that give a more bearish case then for an investor trying to diversify to emerging markets or developing economies in the near term, given that you would be long their currency by buying those equities? Usually, emerging markets in particular do well when their currencies are rising against the dollar, which has not been the case. Again, I go back to that point, the best time to buy or to avoid a drawdowns after one's already taken place. Let's say the dollar were to surge and you were to have a sovereign debt crisis. That's going to be very nasty for emerging markets. That's going to be very nasty for any foreign investing and for domestic investing because everything will correlate in the extreme. But there's going to be a moment, there's a price for everything, where if that happens and there's a real nasty sell-off, you probably would want to buy into that capitulation for those stocks that are outside of the US. I don't think it's here just yet, unless the dollar were to start reversing, in which case you've taken off the sovereign debt crisis pressure, so to speak. But I do think it's Looking at emerging markets, looking at European markets, but I would say even more so emerging markets, that's going to be a really interesting place to just maybe consider allocating to in the event there there is an event, you know, obviously waiting for the event to take place, because that's an area of the market also that hasn't done anything for a decade. And I go back to that point about the Morningstar curse, right? You don't know exactly when the cycle is going to favor from a secular perspective emerging markets against the US. You just know that every day that goes by, you're closer to it. I know that doesn't help anybody because that could be closer to it meaning three years from now. But if you are going to be a true investor, who cares? That's fine. Okay. I think that I'm going to end it here today. I want to be mindful of your time. Thank you so much for joining me today, Michael. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience go to connect with you and learn more about your work and everything that you do? I appreciate that. I mean, the main thing is Twitter at Lee Lagerport and I mentioned I do these Twitter spaces, these live conversations with different thought leaders. That's on an edited basis on a podcast I call Lead Lag Live, also available everywhere. Uh, Twitter is often the best way, and um, you will see that my Twitter persona is very different than my podcast persona right here. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.